I promised you we would be starting a Sermon on the Mount today, Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there. And uh, remember, we kind of started it last time I taught. I started it at the end, and now I'm going back to the beginning because, you know, I'm just weird. But uh, I wanted to make sure you understood the goal as we got in. So this morning, uh, we're going to just begin to talk about Sermon on the Mount. We'll probably be here for quite a few weeks, and however long it takes us to get through it. Um, let me just start with prayer. Lord, uh, this is your sermon. Lord, I pray you would give us understanding. You would open our eyes that we might see marvelous things in your word. Uh, Lord, you thought these were the most important things for you to say at this time, and you recorded it. And so we ask for you to, under, under, uh, to impart understanding to our hearts so that we can live this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so... We are going to start, it starts right out with what you have probably heard called the Beatitudes, or it's just Latin for uh, blessing or happy, and hang on to that happy, because that is what the word means. Uh, some of your translations will say, blessed are you if, some of your translations will say, happy are you if, it means the same thing. It's hard to be blessed and unhappy, I guess. So uh, we're going for happy. Now, we're familiar with these, but uh, I think they may be more important than we realize. And so we're going to take our time and get a little bit deeply into these this morning. And I want you to know that these aren't just sayings. These are eight keys to happiness. How many of you want to be happy? Okay, good. If someone next to you doesn't, you should talk to them after church. Eight keys to being happy, uh, and they're in God. God designed us. God knows how to make us happy, right? And uh, as we saw last week, remember we started at the end of Sermon on the Mount, we saw that we're only, they only work if we do them, uh, if we're doers of the Word, not hearers only. So it's not going to do you any good if you hear and understand what I'm saying this morning if you don't commit to doing this. It will only make you happy if you do it, not if you just hear it. You guys remember that. Now, what I want you to see is these, I'm going to call them eight great values, the Beatitudes. These are values that we need to have or we need to develop. And these eight values are the foundation of the Sermon on the Mount. They're the first thing Jesus says. They're the most important thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. For all three chapters, uh, these are the foundation. Uh, we're going to continually refer back to these and build on these as we talk about the Sermon on the Mount. You can't really do the Sermon on the Mount if you don't really grasp these eight foundational values. So we're going to, I encourage you to be thinking about them, to be looking at them, to be thinking about how to build them in your life, to go back to them, because we're going to keep referring to them as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, Here's the other thing I want you to see in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, keep in mind, it's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus goes up on a little hill and preaches a sermon pretty deep. And he's gathered around him a bunch of Jewish followers who have been living under the law literally for centuries. Now, they, haven't, they aren't centuries old, but the Jewish people have been living under the law for centuries. 
with the coming of Jesus, with his sacrifice on the cross for us, with the giving of the Holy Spirit, everything is going to change. Now, they don't get that yet. This sermon is the transition from the law to the new covenant. This is Jesus trying to prepare people to move from a law-based mindset to a grace by faith, new covenant, Holy Spirit indwelling us concept. Now, it's easy for us because uh, we kind of start there to forget this, uh, but it's important that we see this because here's what's, well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. I want you to see this in Scripture. There are two places in the Old Testament where God tells them he's going to make a new covenant and tells them what it's going to be like, and I want to look at those. One of those is in Jeremiah, and uh, again, this is the transition from the old to the new. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, uh, God says through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. By the way, it's Israel and Judah's new covenant that we got grafted into. It is not our new covenant instead of them. That's a different teaching. Just thought I'd throw that in there. All right, so I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. What was the covenant he made with their fathers? The law. So it's not going to be like that covenant. It's going to be different. We'll talk about how. In the days that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. How well did they keep the old covenant? Yeah, there we go. That's it right there. Good job. Sums it right up. Not well. They were unable to keep this covenant, and God knew they would be unable to keep it because they didn't have the, really the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's just something they had to do in the flesh, right? And so he says, uh, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. What I want you to see is this is probably the most important thing to get or the mindset to have as you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, that this entire sermon is about changing their mindset from outward behaviors to minds and hearts, to the inner man. They've grown up under the law for centuries only dealing with outward behavior. Do this, don't do that. If you do do what you're not supposed to do, take this animal and do that to this animal and then you'll be okay till next year right? And it's, it doesn't deal with the inward heart, even though that's involved. And they did a terrible job of following that. So you're going to see again and again and again, he's moving from outward behavior to inward heart issues through the Sermon on the Mount. Got that? You can probably think of a couple of those coming up real soon. And so what I want you to see is these eight values that we are talking about must be internally developed. Sometimes we think Christianity is developing a certain behavior. The Old Testament taught us that we can't, in our own strength, develop the behavior of God. So this is about internally developing the values of God so that we outwardly manifest His kingdom. We're not just trying to obey what he says to do, we're gaining 
values, these eight values in our hearts, so that we begin to outwardly do it anyway. They, that his, the behavior flows out of us because we've been changed on the inside. Is you following me? Okay? So this is why these eight values are so important. They have to be internally developed to manifest outwardly the kingdom of God. And this is possible only by his indwelling spirit. You can't do it without him. just can't do it. In fact, I love this. Every time I teach on the Sermon on the Mount, and now that I'm saying it, probably no one will, but every time I've done this in the past, someone has shook their head and gone, how do we even do this? And I go, exactly. That's the point. You can't do this without the Spirit of God. You can't do it without the Spirit of God. It's hard, and I want you to know that right up front. This is hard. It got a lot harder. Now, it got way easier to get forgiven. We don't have to kill animals but because uh, Jesus is the ones for all sacrifice. But it got a lot harder to live up to the expectations uh, of God because we're not just doing outward behavior anymore. He's after our hearts. And we see this, the other place in the Old Testament we see this is in Ezekiel chapter 36 where he's talking about the time they will experience this new covenant. And he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What will be the result? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. I submit to you that you can only walk in his statutes and keep his judgments and do them because his spirit is in you and that we need to develop these eight values for his spirit to do this because they're the values of the kingdom of heaven. You with me so far? All right, so we're beginning to look at these eight values that produce happiness in us. Eight values that produce happiness in us. I'm emphasizing this because it is completely counterintuitive. You're going to look at these and go, I don't see how this is going to make me happy. In fact, a lot of times it looks like the exact opposite of that value is going to make me happy. For example, the last one has to do with persecution. How's persecution going to make me happy? We'll talk about that next week. It's the values that make us happy, that produce happiness in us. And so I have two goals as we go through these. We're only going to try and cover the first four this morning because I feel like that's all we can handle. And, you know, we'll have to take this in bites. Uh, but uh, my goal, and again, we're in Matthew, the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. We're getting ready to look at these. My goal this morning is that, one, I keep this simple. This needs to be simple. This needs to be something we understand and can do. And, and again, Jesus kept it simple, and so I'm going to do my best to do that. But also that I answer the question that you're all asking, how does this make me happy? How do these values make me happy? So that's my goal. We're going to try and answer that question. All right, so let's start. We're in verse 3. The first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit get the kingdom. And I wrote in your notes, I'm kind of rephrasing these, and then I'll explain why I phrased them that way. Uh, instead of poor in spirit, I'm just putting humility because it's easier to remember. Humility is a magnet for the favor of God and for the resources of his kingdom. That's what this beatitude is saying, is that if you'll be humble, it will draw God's attention, and he will give you access to the resources of heaven. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Everything in the kingdom. Okay? Now, here's how that works. I'm going to look at just a few quick verses. Uh, it's, it's really pretty simple. If we feel like we're, you know, if we're proud and we feel like we got things handled, God will go, okay, handle it. Because he's kind of polite. It's only as we're humble and we, and again, I talked about this not long ago, so I'm not going to hit humility a whole lot. But it's only as we, hum, as we humble ourselves uh, that we express to God our need and desire for his help. And he's only happy to give it. So if you don't want God's help, he won't bother you. Tell him. Uh, but I do. So Isaiah 66, verse 2. But to this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. Very simple principle. God says, I look at humble people. Humble people draw my attention. I start looking at them. Every time I see a humble person, I stop and I fix my eyes on them. I gaze at them. I like humble people. Right? So if you want God, want his attention, humility. It's that simple. Not only that, it says in 2 Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Not only does he catch that attention and look at the humble, he's looking throughout the whole earth for exactly that kind of person. And when he finds them, he goes, I want to show myself strong on behalf of that person. Not only am I looking at them, I want to give them resources. I want to help them. I want to strengthen them. I want to show myself strong on their behalf. I want to act for them. They're beginning to see the value of humility. Not only that, it says in James 4, 6, God resists the proud. Again, you got to handle, handle it yourself, but gives grace to the humble. Now, the best definition of grace biblically is not forgiveness. It is empowerment. Everything happens by grace. So God says, when I see a humble person, I want to empower them. I want to give them spiritual gifts. I want to give them resources of the kingdom of heaven. I want to give them my power. Right? And then finally, Matthew 23, 12, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So God looks through the whole earth. He sees somebody with humility. And he says, I like that person. I'm going to help that person. I'm going to empower that person. And finally, I'm going to promote that person. I want that person in charge of something. I'm going to exalt them. Right? This is all in the Bible. I didn't make this up. This is God's attitude towards humility. So you can begin to see the appeal of this value. Let me put it this way. And this is just my experience. You may have a different experience. My experience is that it is stressful to promote and defend myself. Wears me out. There is tremendous freedom and happiness in leaving it to God. It's God's problem. It's God's problem. I did that a long time ago with church. They go, what, do you, what would you do if, you know, couldn't be a pastor, if a church on the rock didn't make it? I just go, not my problem. Don't care. Don't care. Really. I mean, I care about the people, but there's a lot of good churches in town. They'll be fine. That's God's problem. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, do you know the stress that would be involved if I was worried about whether or not this thing's going to happen or that thing's going to happen or 
if you're going to make it or not make it, or is everybody okay? You know, you guys ever done that? So all I do is go, all right, God, I'm going to do what you told me. I'm going to try and take the best care I can of the sheep here, as long as there's sheep here. And that's, and that's it. That's all you've asked me to do. The rest is your problem. If we grow, if we don't, if we whatever, uh, there's freedom in that. I'm happy doing that. I don't have to worry about uh, a five-year plan or next year or whatever. You can do that with your job. You can just be humble. Go, yeah. I'm just here doing what God tells me to do. I'm not going to promote myself. I'm not going to defend myself. God wants me to do something else. That's fine. I don't care. I just want to be happy. What makes me happy? Just doing what God tells me to do, which happens to be standing up here talking about this right now. All right. Ready for the next one? So, okay. And so, again, I just want to keep reminding you, I'm, I'm referring to these as values. We're talking about getting humility into ourselves as a value. I'll talk more about that at the end. Second one is a little trickier. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is this talking about? Uh, if you look in the commentaries, it's probably not just talking about, you know, when Grandma passes away. Uh, it probably wasn't a major topic. And by the way, when Grandma passes away, I'll comfort you. Uh, no, it's bigger than that. Um, most of the, com- in fact, I think all the commentaries put this in the context of sin, and I think that's correct, and I'll explain why as we look at some verses here. But what he's basically saying is that God comforts those who partner with him in mourning sin, in being grieved by sin. Now, that mourning and being grieved by sin isn't the same as, uh, it's not, you know, woe is me, and, and uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's having his heart towards it, all right? And here's what I want you to see. Again, he's probably talking about mourning over sin, and not just our own, uh, but the sin around us, which is heavier. And in Paul, twice, the reason I think this is biblical is uh, the couple times we see the word mourn in the New Testament, Paul is referring to sin and both times, he's referring to other people's sin. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about, hey, you guys got a guy who's deep in sin in your church, and you should be mourning over that. And then the second time, in 2 Corinthians, he says, if I come to you and I find you doing these sinful activities, it's going to cause me to mourn. And so we see a biblical principle that other people's sin should cause us to mourn. Isn't that wild? And I think that's what is being talked about here because it leads to intercession. Uh, remember we talked about Galatians chapter 4 where Paul talked, said to the Galatians, I'm, I'm laboring in prayer like a woman in labor, like a woman having a baby until Christ is formed in you, until you guys are manifesting the kingdom of God. I'm laboring. I'm, if, if you're in sin, I'm mourning over that. Now, here's what that looks like, because again, I don't think it just looks like, uh, you know, uh, I'm just sad and I'm going to pout. It it looks like intercession, and I want you to see it. In Galatians 6, here's the concept. He says, in the first two verses in Galatians 6, he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, that just means, hey, there's somebody in your church and he's caught in sin. 
when she's caught in sin, right? What do we do? What's the, what's the rest of us going to say? Put it on Facebook? Quit talking to them? Tell everybody about it? We wouldn't do any of that, right? Okay. Yeah, all right. Where was I? All right. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you are spiritual. Restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. He's saying our heart needs to be immediately, how do we restore that person? How do we get that person back? How do we get him back into the kingdom of light? It's a mentality that we haven't always had. We kind of get that we stand together. If we all get revival or, uh, you know, if you're getting revival over here and we're with you, then we get revival over here. But we don't as easily get that if we got sin over here, it affects over here also. That we stand together and we fall together. That we're in this together. And so God is saying, blessed are those who mourn, they'll receive comfort. Blessed are those who have my heart for, in general, what sin does, how sin destroys and, and begins to enter into intercession. I think it needs to lead us that way. Uh, let me put it this way. I think we are happier with an intercessor's heart than with an, uh, an ambivalent heart or an accusatory heart. Now, you know, sin's always being revealed. Every, every you know, just there's always bad stuff. Watch the news. Sometimes it's Christians. Sometimes it's others. Uh, it's always out there. Or you go and you find out somebody's doing this or somebody's doing that or whatever. And our immediate reaction tells us what our value is. Now, sometimes I'm ambivalent. Well, that's their problem. That's not my problem, right? Sometimes I'm accusatory. Yeah, I knew that guy was up to something. I didn't think he had his stuff together. Or I could have this heart that mourns and goes immediately to intercession. Oh, God, help that person. They must feel terrible. Now, here's the thing. Those who mourn will be comforted. I believe the comfort is the partnership of Jesus Christ coming alongside of us. Every time I have entered into intercession for someone else's sin, I, well, not every time, most times, I feel the presence of God come with me in that. Why? Because God in heaven says, that's how I feel. I'll partner with you in that. If I'm ambivalent about it, if I just don't care, God says, well, I kind of care. I can't really partner with you in your ambivalence. I don't have any comfort in that, do I? Because there's no partnership from God. If I am accusatory, God says, I absolutely can't partner with you in that. And by the way, who will partner with me in that? The accuser of the brethren. He is happy to partner with me in that. There's no comfort in that either, because he's not a comforter. He's a liar. Amen. The only place of comfort is if my heart is touched with mourning over other people's sin, and I go, God, help them. That's it. That's the only place where God's comfort comes. And I think that's what he's talking about here when he says, blessed are those who mourn, 
they'll be comforted. I'll partner with them in their mourning over sin. Uh, you, again, that one's uh, a little tougher. You guys can feel free to believe something different, and we'll still love each other probably. Number three. Again, we're going to see if we can get through four of these today. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Some of your translations will say gentle. I'm going to use gentle. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. This was in Psalm 37 this morning, by the way, that we were singing in pre-service prayer. Blessed are the gentle, they'll inherit the earth. I think God entrusts the gentle with what is precious to him because they have his heart. If you had something precious, would you trust me with it? What if I wasn't gentle? Would you trust me with your kids if I wasn't gentle? No, probably not. And so God's just saying, I'll give the earth to the gentle because the earth is important to me. Uh, the earth is mine and everything in it, the fullness of it, all the people who dwell there. And uh, I'm going to have people rule over it, but they're going to have to have my heart. I'll, I'll give the whole earth to people who are gentle, who have my heart. Gentleness as a value. Isn't that wild? Now, I've been praying this verse a lot, so I just have a chance to use it again, and I'm going to do it because, you know, I'm up here and you're not. Um, in uh, Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Take my yoke upon you. That means partner with me. You take two animals, you yoke them together, they got to walk together, right? So he's saying, partner with me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. All right? What are we learning? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I submit to you that Jesus is saying, come partner with me. I want to teach you how to be gentle and humble. That's what he says. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Learn what? Well, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. That's what I want you to learn. But catch the end, and you'll find rest. What's the value of developing a value for gentleness? It's rest. You will be happier at rest having learned his gentleness than not. And my experience is that's true. When I can enter into his gentleness, I find I'm more peaceful. I'm more at rest. I'm happier. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of confrontation out there in the world. Have you noticed that? Confrontation everywhere. And confrontation isn't of itself bad. Uh, we, we lovingly confront one another to challenge one another with the word. But it needs to be done with the wisdom of God, right? Now, we looked at this before also, James 3.17. I want you to listen to the words that describe wisdom that comes from heaven and tell me how many of these feel uh, traditionally confrontational, all right? It says, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, wow, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. None of those words are traditionally confrontive. 
If we're going to confront, let's do it with the wisdom of God, with gentleness, being willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality, without hypocrisy, that kind of stuff. So that is the call. And what he's saying is, not only will we be happier if we do that, we will experience rest. We will be the kind of people that everyone else is arguing, and you're sitting over there with a smile on your face, and they're going, why are you at rest? You know, well, I've learned to value gentleness. You guys haven't. You guys are, uh, as Jesus says, be careful if you uh, bite, or Paul says, be careful if you bite and devour one another lest you consume one another. See a lot of that going on, right? But if we'll gain a value for gentleness, we will find rest. Jesus said that. Learn from me gentleness, you'll find rest. Let me say that again. Jesus said, Learn from me gentleness, you'll find rest. Who wants rest? The older I get, the more I like it. Amen? There's a term, gentlemen. Gentlemen, gentlewomen, used to mean something. Now it just tells you which bathroom to go to, and even then it's not even sure. Right? doesn't mean anything. You in a room say, gentlemen, here, you know, uh, our Congress uses it all the time. The gentleman from Arkansas, the gentlewoman from, you know, and are they gentle? No. It used to mean you could expect superior behavior from that person. Right? Why don't we bring that back? Why, what if the church restored to the earth what it means to be a gentleman or a gentlewoman? All right, just a thought. Let's go on to number four. You ready? We're doing all right. We're going to make it. Probably. All right. Number four. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And some of your translations will say satisfied. Either one works. And it's literally talking about like food, like having food and clothing, uh, just being satisfied with the necessities of life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Now, in a minute, I want you to notice the hunger and thirst part because uh, it's not just blessed are those who do righteousness. Sounds like that's a little bit more, doesn't it? We'll talk about that in a minute. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And he, he's just saying that God satisfies those who desire righteousness. If you desire righteousness, I'll take care of the rest. That's all God's saying. You pursue righteousness, I'll take care of everything else. In fact, he says it, we're going to get to it in Matthew chapter 6, because it's still the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 33, you guys are probably all familiar with this verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And if you read it in context, the whole chapter, the things he's talking about are food and clothing, right? What's your basic necessities? So is it okay to want food and clothing? Sure. Not a problem. The word first is in there, though. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. By who? By God. So God's doing that. And so all he's saying is that we will be happier if we prioritize righteousness over provision. Now, that takes trust. you got to trust God because there are going to be all these decisions in life. And some of them, it looks like, 
you can have better provision if you just compromise a little bit, right? Well, I'm just going to do it this way. Everybody does it that way. And what that indicates is you're kind of trusting God to take care of you, but you're also kind of taking care of yourself, right? And so it begs the question, do we value righteousness? So much so that we're willing to trust that if I'll pursue righteousness, God will make my provision work out. Are we willing to trust that? That's what he's asking of us. You see how this gets hard? That's a heavy value. To trust that if I just pursue his kingdom and his righteousness, he'll take care of everything else. I got bills to pay. Is the guy really going to take care of that? Only one way to find out. Do it his way. Now, what I think he's really talking about here, and this is what I want you to see, is motivation. Uh, what motivates us to righteousness? And I'm going to use your children as an example because that will make it easier to understand. Now, sometimes, uh, for example, how many of you have, no, never mind. Some of you have uh, small children at home, three, four, five years old. Most of those children, uh, their righteousness is entirely fear-based. In other words, I will be righteous if you threaten to punish me. But if I think I can get away with it, I'm going to do it. Has anyone experienced this? Yeah. And this is why you discipline your children, because if you don't, they'll just keep taking cookies or whatever. Uh, their, their concept of righteousness at that age is entirely fear-based, punishment-based. And that's not bad for a three or four or five-year-old. That's appropriate. That's all they can understand is if I do that, uh, I get punished. If I don't do that, I don't get punished. So they're learning, and that's, that's where they're at. It's okay for a little kid. If you're a believer, though, and your obedience to God is largely fear-based or punishment-based, that should be an indication that you're an immature believer. You haven't understood First uh, John 4, where he says, perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And God's not about punishing you. He's about loving you. Uh, but if the only thing, if we're immature and the only way we'll respond is punishment, then I don't think God has a problem using that to get our attention. But he wants us to walk in love with him. So there are higher ways to do it. And so, sure, you start out uh, with fear-based little kid. Uh, you know, if I, if I don't do this, I'm going to get punished. So I'm going to do it. But if, if, I don't, if I think I can get away with it, I'm going to get away with it, right? And some of us have lived our Christian lives that way. But we mature, and we move on to what I'm going to call obligation. I'm not afraid of being punished, but I'm only doing it because it's an obligation. I don't want to do it. God, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it this way. I'm only doing it because you make me. Maybe you'll relate to this. Uh, maybe this is more your teenagers, you know, uh, where you tell them something to do, and they do it, but they do it like this. <sighs> right? That face means I'm going to do it, but it's important that you understand what a tedious burden this is for me <laughs> to do this, right? Now, I'm talking about other people's kids, not our teenagers. 
our teenagers are awesome, right? Right, teenagers? Yeah, go like this, say yes. They don't do that, right? They've moved past that. But this is obedience by obligation. And I've done that with God. I don't really want to do this. God's making me do this. Right? We do that. We can go higher. Now, God doesn't have a problem with the, the next one I want to talk about is reward-based righteousness. Uh, God doesn't have a problem with reward. He says in Revelation uh, 22, Behold, I am coming, and my reward is with me. He reminds us a lot about rewards. He didn't have a problem motivating us with rewards. So some of us are going, look, there's something in me that wants to do that, but I know there's eternal reward, and I know it's better now, uh, and I want God's blessing, so I'm going to obey God because I want His blessing, even though I'd really like to do that, or I'd really like to have that attitude, or I'd really like to say that thing. But I'd rather have God's blessing, so I'm going to obey for the sake of the reward, right? And most of us feel like we've done pretty well if we get that far. But there's a fourth place. And this is what I'm going to call hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is where we actually begin to develop righteousness as a value, where we actually begin to go, this makes me happy. This is bet My life is better doing this. The reward isn't that I'm going to be uh, reward in heaven for being obedient. The reward is right now I'm experiencing more of God's presence. I'm experiencing joy. I, I'm free. I like this. I want more of this. I'm beginning to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm not just doing it because I'm afraid of being punished or because it's an obligation or because I'm going to get a reward in heaven. I'm actually beginning to see the appeal of this. And it's becoming of value to me where righteousness becomes its own reward for its own sake. I start valuing it because I just like it. I like my life better. And the thing I wanted to do, I don't want to do as much. I'm kind of wanting to do this. Now, that takes some work, guys. That takes developing this value in our inner man. I got to be honest with you. I feel like there are areas in my life where I've only started to grasp this in the last two or three years. This, uh, this hungering and thirsting for these things. This developing, developing these things as a value where the reward is in the value itself. Developing humility and mourning over sin and gentleness and, and righteousness as a value. So they're not something that I, I go the other way and then I catch myself and go, oh, I need to go this way, that it begins to be, oh, I need to do it this way right off the bat because it's a value. I'm going to go humble. Instead of starting with, I'm going to tell them what I think. No, I've got to choose humility. Start developing it as a value to where it's, okay, I'm just going to go humble. Okay, I'm just going to pray for that person. Right? All right. I like my life better with this righteousness stuff in there. I'm going to pursue that. I'm going to, I'm going to spend time in prayer because I find that fuels that. I'm going to partner more with God because I find it fuels that. Are you seeing what I mean by I say these things have to become values in our life? All four of these, well, all eight of them, but I've only talked about four, have to become values. 
They have to be developed in us, in our inner man. And some of them are hard. Make sense? All right. So how many of you want these values? I only gave you four. If you could work on these this week and get them all done. <laughs> and we can do the other four next week. By Christmas, you could be awesome. Yeah? You understand what I'm saying? Guys, this is so hard that only God can do it, but it's so doable because he is so eager to help us develop these values. But we have to set our sights on not just obeying or not being punished or that kind of We have to set our sights on letting these things become our values. And you only do that, that's why Jesus said, take my yoke, partner with me, learn from me, spend time with me, get in my word, get in prayer, hang around me, and you'll start to learn gentleness and humility. They'll start to be, my values will start to become your values, and you'll find rest. Amen? All right, let's have the band up. Baby, I mean, Dad? Okay, just that. Let's pray. I just want to say this morning when we were in worship, uh, I felt in an unusual way the tenderness of the Lord. I just kept feeling these little waves of his tenderness. A couple times I almost started tearing up. I'm like, man, God's just being really tender this morning. I think he wants us to know. Uh, he's not asking us to do something he doesn't do. He's so far beyond us on this. His righteousness, his gentleness, his mercy, his goodness, his love, is so far beyond what we can imagine. He is so tender. And he's drawing us into that. So, Lord, we just pray this morning. We know the world is going to get darker. We know there's going to be wars. There's going to be confrontation. There's going to be accusation. There's going to be all those things. Lord, we ask for you to develop in us your values, the values of your kingdom that allow us to partner with you and experience your heart and walk through all these things at rest in you. Lord, we believe you can do this. And today, Lord, as we just go back into worship, I just pray you would encounter your people. I pray if there's anyone here, Lord, who needs a fresh revelation of your love, you would give it to them. Lord, if there's anyone here that's just stuck in obligation, you would free them. Lord, we ask for your tenderness. Where David said, your gentleness has made me great. Lord, we pray you would encounter Church on the Rock and everybody who's listening online this morning with your gentleness, Lord. Make them great through a revelation of your gentleness, your goodness, your kindness, your love.